You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to another Greatest Hits episode of Your Brain on Facts, brought to you by Your Brain on Facts, the book. Available for pre-order now at yourbrainonfacts.com slash book. And brought to you by my chronic lung condition that we still don't have a diagnosis for, but I promise you is not COVID-19. I just didn't have the lung capacity to record a whole episode this week, but I'll be back on track for next week. The equalization for the vocal track on this episode was not quite where it should have been, so you might notice it sounds a little muffled, but this was still one of my favorite episodes. Don't forget there are three and a half hours of bonus material over at patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts, or you can hang out with like-minded curious folks at facebook.com slash groups slash Brainiac Breakroom. And now, your feature presentation. In the winter of 1976, the Six Million Dollar Man TV show was filming in a haunted house in Long Beach, California. When a crew member went to move a garish-looking dummy to a different spot, the dummy's arm broke off at the elbow. It was then that the crew member noticed the end of a human bone sticking out of the truncated limb. This wasn't a mannequin. This was Elmer McCurdy, a career criminal who died 65 years earlier in Oklahoma. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. As a forensic science-slash-true-crime-slash-weird-history buff of the First Order, I almost didn't include McCurdy in today's episode of Well-Traveled Corpses, because his story makes all of these lists. But you know me. I like to be thorough. Elmer McCurdy was born January 1st of 1880 to an unwed mother and adopted by his uncle and aunt. The first 20 years of his life were fairly unremarkable, until a string of personal losses led him to say, screw it, I'ma go rob some trains. A brief stint in the army had seen him trained to use nitroglycerin for demolition, and he decided to blend the two careers. The trouble was, he tended to be heavy-handed with the explosives, once costing his gang 90% of the money in a safe he blew. The remaining 10% that they did get was in coins that were melted together. McCurdy's final robbery took place on October 4, 1911, near Okeesa, Oklahoma, when McCurdy and his men mistakenly stopped a passenger train instead of the one carrying $400,000 that they were after. The men were only able to steal about $46 from the mail clerk, some whiskey, a pistol, and the train conductor's watch. A newspaper account of the robbery called it, quote, one of the smallest in the history of train robbery. Even still, a $2,000 bounty was put on McCurdy, and someone gave him up. In the wee hours of October 7th, a posse of sheriffs tracked McCurdy to a hay shed using bloodhounds. Gunfire was exchanged for over an hour, and in the end, McCurdy was shot in the chest and killed. McCurdy's body was subsequently taken to the Johnson Funeral Home in Pahuska, Oklahoma, where it went unclaimed. Joseph Johnson, the owner and undertaker, embalmed the body with an arsenic-based preservative and stored it in the back of the funeral home, refusing to bury the body or release it until he had been paid for his services. Johnson then decided, if he was going to get any money out of this situation, 
he'd have to be more proactive. He dressed the corpse up in street clothes, placed a rifle in McCurdy's hands, and stood him up in the corner of the funeral home. For a nickel apiece, visitors could see the bandit who wouldn't give up. McCurdy became a popular attraction at the funeral home and also drew the attention of carnival promoters, though Johnson refused numerous offers to buy the mummified body. In 1916, a man claiming to be Elmer McCurdy's long-lost brother got permission from the sheriff to take custody of the body and ship it to San Francisco for a proper burial. The following day, Johnson released the body to this man and an accomplice, who then put it on a train bound for Arkansas City, Kansas. The men were in fact James and Charles Patterson, owners of the Great Patterson Carnival Shows, where McCurdy's corpse would be featured until 1922, when Patterson sold his operation to Lewis Sonny. Sonny used McCurdy's corpse in his traveling Museum of Crime show, which featured wax replicas of famous outlaws such as Bill Doolin and Jesse James. In 1928, the corpse was part of the official sideshow that accompanied the Trans-American foot race. In 33, it was acquired for a time by director Dwayne Esper to promote his exploitational film, Narcotic, with an exclamation point. In a very William Castle-style move, the corpse was placed in the lobby of the theater as a dead dope fiend. By this time, some 22 years after death, McCurdy's body had become mummified, the skin was hard, and the body had shriveled to the size of a child. Esper claimed that this deterioration was proof of the danger of drugs. McCurdy's corpse would bounce between warehouses and movie sets for the next four decades. Damage from mishandling meant that the corpse was no longer all that lifelike, which is how it found its way to the Laugh in the Dark Funhouse at the Pike in Long Beach. After it was discovered that he wasn't a mannequin, McCurdy was sent to the L.A. coroner. By this time, the body was essentially petrified and had been covered in wax and layers of paint. It weighed about 50 pounds or 23 kilos and was 63 inches or 160 centimeters tall. Some hair was still visible on the sides and back of the head, but McCurdy's ears, big toes, and many of his fingers were missing. Of all of the clues that led the coroner and accompanying historians to determine the mummy's identity, the most interesting was found in McCurdy's mouth. It had nothing to do with his teeth, but was a 1924 penny and ticket stubs to the 140 West Pike Sideshow and the Lewis Sunny Museum of Crime. The discovery made national headlines, and an actual distant relative came forward to claim Elmer McCurdy's body, which was buried on April 22, 1977, in the Boot Hill section of the Summit View Cemetery in Guthrie, Oklahoma, next to the actual body of outlaw Bill Doolin. Two feet of concrete were poured on top of the coffin to ensure that McCurdy's rambling days were over. McCurdy is hardly the only outlaw-turned-famous mummy. Take the case of one Hazel Ferris, born in Kentucky in 1880, orphaned as a child, and later married to a man with whom she drank heavily and fought loudly. Her history has morphed into folklore, but by all accounts, on August 6, 1905, the couple had an argument over Ferris's desire to buy a new hat. If you've been in a relationship for any length of time, you know that wasn't really what they were fighting about. 
The two came to blows, and Ferris ended up shooting her husband, who died on the living room floor. Neighbors who heard the gunshot summoned police. The situation did not improve upon their arrival, because Ferris shot and killed them too. A passing deputy sheriff heard the commotion, gained entry to the house, and tried to restrain Ferris. During the scuffle, the deputy tripped on Ferris's husband's body, accidentally firing his gun and shooting off one of her fingers. Ferris eventually broke free and fatally shot the deputy as well. So she shot the sheriff, and she did shoot the deputy. With five murders under her belt and a $500 reward for her capture, which I couldn't put into modern figures because the inflation calculators don't go back that far, Ferris fled to Bessemer, Alabama to try to begin a new life. One version of her story has her posing as a school marm, another has her working as a prostitute. But both agree that she drank excessively. She took up with a new man, and when they became engaged, Ferris confided in him who she really was. He immediately gave her up to police. On December 20, 1906, fairly certain she wouldn't emerge victorious from a second shootout, Hazel Ferris committed suicide by drinking some combination of whiskey, fuel oil, and arsenic. Ferris's body was taken to Adams Vermilion Furniture, which also sold caskets and, as such, functioned as the local funeral parlor. No one came forward to claim her body, which was strangely mummifying rather than decomposing. There is speculation that it's because of the chemicals Ferris drank, but I don't put a great deal of stock by that. Regardless of the reason, the corpse had longevity and a certain renown. Adams began charging curious visitors ten cents to see the notorious outlaw. After a time, Ferris's body hit the road when Adams loaned the corpse to various exhibitors, including his brother in Tuscaloosa, Palace of Wonders sideshow operator Captain Harvey Lee Boswell, and O.C. Brooks, who featured the well-preserved remains in his traveling show, for 40 years. When he died, Brooks left Hazel to a nephew on the condition that any money raised from displaying her be donated to charity. As the story goes, Brooks's nephew displayed Ferris's mummy to raise money to build churches in Tennessee. Just let that paradigm sink in. The nephew eventually brought her back to Bessemer, where she became an infamous attraction at the newly formed Hall of History. The Hall of History also had exhibits more typical of a modern history museum, such as the door to Martin Luther King Jr.'s jail cell and Adolf Hitler's telephone. And it's housed in a restored railroad terminal, just like the Science Museum here in my hometown. After a long run at the Hall of History, Ferris became the subject of a National Geographic documentary, which is where reality reasserts itself over folklore. An autopsy performed for the documentary indicated the mummified woman had died of pneumonia, not poisoning, but one of her fingers had indeed been shot off some time well before her death. The state of the body tissue was consistent with having been immersed in arsenic. It's entirely possible that the manner of Ferris's death was retconned to fit the state of the remains. After the documentary was finished, Hazel's owners decided to lay her to rest and had the body cremated. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. 
I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places. Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan. But nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Hazel Ferris wasn't the only mummy shown by sideshow operator Captain Lee Harvey Boswell. After the common-law husband of nightclub performer Marie O'Day murdered her, he threw her body in Utah's Great Salt Lake, where her body remained for 12 years. It had washed ashore but remained covered in salt, silt, and sand. When discovered in 1937, her body was said to have been, quote, mummified but not petrified, due to the more than 20% salt content in the water of the lake. At least, that's the way she was billed. Though O'Day's case is more recent and should be easier to verify, any backstory being offered by someone trying to sell tickets has to be taken with, no pun intended, a grain of salt. O'Day passed through the hands of at least four showmen, with names like Hoot Black and Gold Tooth Jimmy, and was viewed in 38 states plus parts of Canada before being sold to Boswell in 1975. He removed her from the traditional coffin in which she had been displayed because it offended the public, which is a funny place to draw the line, and he put her in the Palace of Wonders alongside shrunken heads and animals with too many body parts. O'Day's tale may be less like the natural mummies we featured way back in episode 16, Mummy's Day, and more like McCurdy and Ferris, that of a body with no one to claim it. According to an account from W.F. Dubb, one of the first people to exhibit O'Day, First, the body was an embalmed body of some woman, and the red hair was for real. I really don't know how she died. I don't think Marie ever saw the Great Salt Lake, and I doubt she was ever even in the state of Utah. I heard a lot of stories about where she came from, and I don't know which one is the truth. The one that sounds the best is that she was found dead, sitting in the waiting room of a bus station in Mississippi. There was no ID on her body or in her handbag, but she was well-dressed and looked like class. 
the undertaker assumed someone would show up to claim her body, and it would only be a matter of days until he could be rid of her. Well, the days turned into weeks, then months, then years, and still no one showed up. After so much time had passed, a traveling showman came by and offered him something for her. It seemed like a good idea to sell and recover something, better still, to be rid of her. So he sold. Two owners later, Hoot Black faced a problem, not with the law, but with rats. During the off-season, when he wasn't on the road with O'Day, Black had to find a safe place to keep her. He didn't want to risk the rats that habituated his storage shed getting to her, so he would wrap O'Day up and store her for the winter under the bed he shared with his wife. I'm going to assume the wife knew about it, because a human body is somewhat more conspicuous than, say, that Xbox your wife told you you couldn't afford. When on the road, O'Day traveled in relative style in a specially converted semi-truck boasting Marie O'Day's Palace Car on the side. I'll link to it in the show notes. If you don't see a link, at me, as the kids say on Twitter at BrainOnFactsPod, or Facebook or Instagram at YourBrainOnFacts. Black sold to Boswell, who had O'Day until his death in 2002. It was about this time that O'Day was examined by college professors Ron Beckett and Jerry Conlogue for the Nat Geo show The Mummy Road Show. They took O'Day to the radiology department at Wilson Medical Center in North Carolina, where a CT scan and tissue biopsies were taken in hopes of confirming or refuting the legends surrounding Marie O'Day. With a sideshow mummy, there had to be a story to bring the people in, says Conlogue. For the carnivals, the story was more important than the mummy itself. Following a full day of studying and analyzing test results, the professors concluded that O'Day had more likely died from tuberculosis and not violent murder. Also, that the mummification resulted from using arsenic to embalm the body, because the amounts found in the tissue were several hundred times the normal concentration. It seems that O'Day has passed to Boswell's son, and has been in storage ever since. She very nearly had a shot at either returning to fame were finally being laid to rest, when she was among the goods being appraised by Mike and Frank of the TV show American Pickers. They passed on O'Day, but did spend $600 on a wax Elvis. Most of the bodies on this list brought in money, for someone anyway, after they died, but one entrant was also a source of profit during her life. Julia Pastrana was born in the mountains of western Mexico in 1834. Her life was defined by her appearance. She was entirely covered with thick, dark hair, except for the palms of her hands and soles of her feet, due to a condition called generalized hypertrichosis. And the shape of her face was distorted by gingival hyperplasia, a thickening of the lips and gums. Pastrana also had a very prominent brow with thick, arched eyebrows, an unusually broad nose, and uneven teeth. Her mother was convinced that some sort of supernatural force was to blame for her daughter's appearance, such as noalis, shape-shifting werewolves of folklore that were said to cause stillbirths and deformities. Young Julia spent the first few years of her life sequestered with her mother in a cave, 
and then in an orphanage, though some accounts have Pastrana being sold by an uncle to a circus. After learning of her, the state governor adopted Tulia to serve as a sort of live-in entertainer. There, at least, she was given an education. She learned multiple languages and the arts, as well as the manners of high society. She stayed in the governor's home until she was twenty, when she decided to return to her village. However, Pastrana never completed her journey. On her way home, she encountered an American showman who persuaded her to perform on stage. Soon after, she began her career in the United States and Europe, taking part in traveling freak shows and circuses. Though her singing and dancing were quite capable, that wasn't what people paid to see. Pastrana was billed under names like The Ape Woman, The Baboon Lady, The Nondescript, or The Bear Woman from the Wilds of Mexico. One newspaper account from the time said, The eyes of this unusual natura beam with intelligence, while its jaws, jagged fangs, and ears are terrifically hideous. Nearly its whole frame is coated with long, glossy hair. Its voice is harmonious, for this semi-human being is perfectly docile and speaks the Spanish language. The idea of Pastrana as a semi-human was established by Dr. Alexander Mott, who examined her and declared her to be the hybrid of a human and an orangutan. At the time, orangutans were considered to be the wildest and most primitive of primates with a dangerous sexuality. Other doctors refuted this ridiculous claim, but Pastrana's PR was based on it, sharing promotional materials that underlined her animalistic otherness. In it, she was described as originating from a tribe of root-digger Indians who were spiteful and hard to govern, living with animals and being intimate with them. Basically, racism as your main or only selling point. Despite all of this, though, Pastrana was a kind-hearted, gentle, intelligent young woman. She loved to travel, cook, and sew, and willingly submitted herself to examinations by doctors. Before she was brought to Europe, Pastrana secretly married her next manager, Theodore Lent. Many believe that she was genuinely in love, while Lent married her to ensure his golden goose never got away. In 1857, in Germany, Pastrana appeared on stage in a play written especially for her. The promotional posters for the show gave her quite a grotesque appearance, with exaggerated red lips similar to depictions of African Americans at the time. When the German audience saw Pastrana, they considered the show to be in bad taste and rejected it outright, to the point that police had to be called in to stop the show. That's right. Germany found this whole situation too distasteful. In January of 1860, while touring Russia, Pastrana gave birth to a baby boy, also covered in hair by her manager husband. The delivery did not go well. Fully grown, Pastrana was only 4 foot 5 or 135 centimeters and 112 pounds or 50 kilos with narrow hips. The baby only survived about 35 hours, and three days later, Pastrana herself passed away from infection. Her last words were said to be, I die happy. I know I have been loved for myself. At least she's free now, right? 
To quote Ramsey Bolton, If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention. Lent got another payday off Pastrana by selling her and the baby to an anatomy professor in Moscow, Dr. Sokolov. Sokolov spent six months preserving their bodies with a technique that was part mummification, part taxidermy. Their bodies were posed in a glass case and put on display at Moscow University's Anatomical Institute. When Lent realized there was still money to be made, he regained control over Pastrana and their son's bodies and spent the next six years hauling their glass display case around the world. While on tour with his family's corpses, Lent met Marie Bartel, who had the same rare conditions as Pastrana, so Lent wooed and married her too. He renamed her Zenora Pastrana and billed her as Julia's fictitious sister, who would perform on stage with the preserved bodies in the background. Later, Lent hid the embalmed bodies and started telling people that Zenora and Julia were actually the same person. Maybe Zenora just wasn't as big of a draw. But Marie turned Zenora fared better than Julia in the long run. After she and Lent retired in St. Petersburg, Lent went insane, and she had him committed to an asylum, where he died. Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Bartel went on to marry a man twenty years her junior. She sold the Pastrana bodies to a man in Oslo, who put them on display, and whose son took them on tour as part of a house of horrors. His exhibit was shut down by, of all people, the Nazis. Pastrana and the baby would be moved from storage space to storage space through Sweden and Norway for 30 years, occasionally still making public appearances. In 1973, the display of human corpses for profit was outlawed in both countries. This didn't mean it was proper burial time, just back into storage. At some point, miscreants broke in, opened the glass case, broke off Pastrana's arm, took the mummy of the baby, and left it in a field where vermin destroyed it. In 1979, the warehouse was broken into again, and Pastrana disappeared, reappearing in 1990 at the Institute of Forensic Medicine in Oslo, in a janitor's closet. While scientists and well-meaning people debated the merits of burial versus study, a Mexican artist living in Oslo, Lauren Barbada, began the fight to repatriate Pastrana's remains. Barbada persisted through bureaucratic pushback for three years until the Norwegian National Committee for the Evaluation of Research on Human Remains agreed with her that Julia Pastrana probably would not have wanted her corpse to be in a glass case in Scandinavia. Pressure from the Mexican ambassador didn't hurt either. Barbada told the New York Times... I felt she deserved the right to regain her dignity and her place in history and in the world's memory. In 2013, Pastrana's body was returned to Sinaloa de Leva, Mexico, 179 years after she was born there. Her grave was covered with flowers sent by people from all over the world. When writing the scripts for these episodes, I put concerted effort into ensuring representation as much as possible for women and people of color. It's often not easy. The history of almost any topic is white men all the way down. For well-traveled corpses, not so much. 
Female bodies preserved and bandied about are thick on the ground. It's a bizarrely equal opportunity outcome in, in terms of social class as well. While many famous political leaders and even people adjacent to them have been preserved and put on display, think Vladimir Lenin, Hugo Chavez, Ferdinand Marcos, they tend to stay put. Not so for Eva Perón. When Argentina's first lady, Eva Perón, died in July of 1952, it was a blow to her husband Juan, not just personally, but also professionally. Eva had been Juan's secret weapon, the only thing keeping the population from turning on him completely. The people loved their Evita. Millions went into mourning when she died. Movies were stopped. Patrons were asked to leave restaurants when the news went out. Within a day, every flower shop in Buenos Aires was completely sold out as people constructed memorials in the streets. Eva's slide into eternity was slow and unenviable. She had breast cancer, though Juan ensured that the doctors kept her diagnosis and the severity of her prognosis from her. There's even contention that she was lobotomized without her consent toward the end of her life. When Eva died, Juan planned for Eva to continue being his figurehead, having already been in talks with a master embalmer. Dr. Pedro Ara began the first stage of his proprietary embalming process within an hour of her death. It involved replacing the body fluids with alcohol and glycerin, which is not too unusual, though he did leave her organs in situ. That's the fancy Latin way of saying in place. Then Dr. Ara injected the corpse with wax and covered it with a thin film of plastic. The whole process took about a year and cost the equivalent of $100,000, after which Dr. Ara declared that Eva Perone was now incorrupt, kind of like a Catholic saint. Eva lay in state at the Ministry of Labor, with Dr. Ara always near at hand, to wait until her monument and tomb were complete. But they never were. In 1955, President Juan Perón was deposed and forced to flee to Spain. Eva was left behind and hidden with Dr. Ara, who continued to work on her as if she were his magnum opus. The new president, Pedro Aramburu, found out that Eva's body was still in country and wanted to get her buried as quickly and quietly as possible. To this end, the head of military intelligence, Walter Koenig, was ordered to get Eva's body from Dr. Ara and take it to the Chacharita Cemetery for burial. There was no indication in my research as to how he got the body from Ara. But en route to the cemetery, for whatever reason, Koenig stopped to take a nap. He awoke to find the truck was surrounded with candles and flowers. Pretty sure that people knew what was in the truck, he switched trucks and drove away from the cemetery. Again, he stopped to rest at night, and again his parking spot became an impromptu memorial. Koenig thought the best thing to do now would be to take Ava's corpse to military intelligence headquarters and stick her in the attic of his office for a year. President Aramburu eventually found out and fired Koenig, ordering that Ava's corpse had to be taken out of the country. Did they ferret her to neighboring Chile or Uruguay? No, Ava's corpse was moved to Italy. 
she was buried in Milan under the name Maria Maggi Magistris, but she wouldn't stay there long. In 1971, Arumburu was killed by guerrilla fighters still loyal to Juan Perón. The location of Ava's grave was uncovered, and a priest and a colonel were sent to retrieve her. Almost sounds like the setup for a bad joke. They exhumed the body, loaded it into a bakery truck, and took Ava to Juan, who was in exile in Madrid, Spain. Dr. Ara was called in to restore Ava, and she was given a place of honor in the Perón's dining room. To the credit of the new Senora Perón, Isabel, she seemed to have been supportive of the idea, even combing and styling Ava's hair. Two years later, Juan Perón was again elected president of Argentina and flew back with his wife. Wife singular. He left Ava behind. Again. Perón died a year later, but that still wasn't the end of it. Peronist guerrillas then dug up President Aramburu's body and held it for ransom on the demand that Isabel Perón, who was now president, repatriate Ava's body. Back in Argentina, the care of Ava's body was given to one Domingo Telechia. He had to contend with not insubstantial damage to Ava's feet, possibly from being put in a coffin or a container that was too small. But otherwise, she was in surprisingly good shape for the 20-plus years. Say what you want to about Dr. Ara. He seemed to know his stuff. Ava was briefly laid in state, with plans to have a monument built again, but Isabel Perón was deposed, and Ava's body was finally given to her family. She's buried in La Recoleta Cemetery in Buenos Aires, 20 feet underground, in what is essentially a steel bunker, to ensure that she can finally rest in peace. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today, though I'll leave you with one apocryphal tale of a body on the move. Hollywood legend John Barrymore partied and drank himself to death in 1942. Shortly after his death, his actor friends Errol Flynn and Raoul Walsh were drinking their sorrows away when Walsh insisted he was too overcome with grief to continue drinking. He left the bar, gathered a few helpers, and smuggled Barrymore's body out of the funeral home where it was waiting to be embalmed. Walsh told the funeral director they wanted to take the body to Barrymore's housebound old auntie who couldn't get out to pay her respects, and they gave him the equivalent of $1,500. Walsh and his accomplices then took Barrymore's body back to Errol Flynn's house, where they propped him up in a chair to startle Flynn when he drunkenly stumbled home. At least, that's how Flynn told it. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>